Final weekly update before the holiday of Pesach. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday, Erev Shabbos at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Oh, good morning. Ah, sounds like you're ready for Pesach. <laughs> Getting ready. Everything's all clean, everything's prepared, <laughs> all set. Ah, I is... hope the hotel is clean and ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will be. The United States refused to say Thursday whether or not it would support a Palestinian proposal for a United Nations resolution to condemn Israeli settlement building, but ruled nothing out. While Washington often criticizes Israeli building work in occupied areas as an obstacle to peace, it's also traditionally resisted Palestinian efforts to pressure Israel through the United Nations. Is there reason to panic that the U.S. is uh, taking its time deciding this one? No, they usually, uh, they've done this uh, repeatedly over recent years, and um, I think also the State Department spokesman said that the U.S. would not accept one-sided resolutions. So it's a sort of mixed message on it. But in my discussions at the U.N. this week, uh, I'm not sure that there will be, the the Palestinian resolution will actually come up right now. I think we're more likely to see something in November uh, and maybe after the U.S. election. I think that's really the target period we should be more concerned about. But you never know. There could be a resolution that is uh, watered down that the United States would not veto, uh, as it did in in 2011 when Abbas tried the same maneuver. He's coming here uh, on the uh, Arab Pesach, actually, and they're going to try and move the resolution, assuming he goes ahead with it, on Pesach, which is sort of adding insult to, in, to the injury that uh, this, this resolution will do, because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the Palestinians. It just uh, is a further provocation. And and you said November. Traditionally, these types of resolutions are encouraged during the September General Assembly. It's, it's specifically this year, November, because of that period of time between the election and the inauguration? Well, I think that that could be the target period if the United States is going to do something, but I don't see uh, necessarily that they're going to initiate it. And I, uh, the resolutions often come up during the General Assembly are proposed, but there are no votes during the opening sessions of the General Assembly, per se, although there are meetings of, uh, of uh, heads of state that take place. But it's usually right in the aftermath of it that we begin to see the usual onslaught of the 20 anti-Israel resolutions, which we already saw this year. The resolutions at the UN Human Rights Council, six of them attacking Israel, none against anybody else. The only permanent issue on the agenda there, the status of the rights of women condemning one country out of all of them. I mean, you, you hear all the violations, all the mutilations, all the killing, all the discrimination against women, and only one country gets gets named. I think one of the president's candidates should look at the real record on these things and see what what the facts are. You know, one other thing on the UN, but first, you just reminded me that uh, that there are artists, there are singers, there are performers who specifically are staying away from certain states because of uh, uh, different rules, regulations, and laws, policies that now govern those states. You know, in in in, um, in regard to specific things. And and yet, those same performers will go to countries that openly discriminate against whoever it might be, whether it's women, whether it's uh, uh, other groups, and, and they don't seem to have any problem you know, keeping their commitment to play in those countries. Right. It's consistency is not necessarily a, a, um, an attribute that is true of those who, who often advocate political and partisan points of view. Yeah. And the, the, the fact is that there are 
some uh, of these uh, singers and others entertainers who have fall victim uh, to the to the political correctness, let alone to the BDS. I saw Morgan Freeman removed the picture he had of himself in Israel from his website because of the reaction of hostile forces, which should be a reminder to us about how active they are and how active those who care about Israel and care about America have to be as well. Oh, no question about it. Um, you know, sometimes we forget how brave and courageous one must be to be anti-BDS, especially when they're part of that community, um, uh, meaning part of the Hollywood community. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Just back to the UN for a second, do, do you have a a notion of where the next United Nations uh, General, um, uh, United Nations Secretary General might come from? What country the new Secretary General might come from? Uh, it's a good question because the the parade has just started this week. The new candidates, the the process to replace Ban Ki Moon, uh, the who will likely run to be president of South Korea now. Oh wow! The um, candidates. Uh, are coming from all over for the former prime minister of New Zealand. You have uh, South Americans now being muted. Originally, it was expected that it would be an East European, that it was their, quote, turn, because it does rotate and, uh, in a sense, but it's not a rule or it's not obligatory. And also that there be a woman, because there's never been a woman secretary, secretary general, general, and right. the feeling is very strong that there should be one. So they had focused originally on two people from Bulgaria, uh, Bukovna is still in the race, and others, um, the f- far former foreign minister of Moldova, and there are some males also from East Europe who are in the race. And the feeling is that if nobody gets, you know, a consensus there, that they would move perhaps to uh, there's a Portuguese uh, and a Spanish ca- uh, candidate, and then two from uh, South America, I think Chile and Argentina, are the first two that are being considered, and of course. As I mentioned, the New Zealand uh, yeah. candidate. The, so they they go through a process where they all, you know, chuck their, their stuff. And I, I actually, I'm meeting with them. They come to to the office to talk and to get our support as well. And and even though we don't vote, and obviously we don't endorse a particular candidate, but it's important for us to meet them and see where where they stand on the issues we care about. I mean, you'll clearly, without revealing it, obviously, you'll clearly have a favorite or or a couple of favorites that, you know, you'd you'd prefer the Secretary General, you know, come from that group, right? Right, and we also have some whom we are absolutely against because of their past track record. Am I wrong that that one of the proposed people to take this position or, or, you know, eventually be elected to this position was from a country that's always voting with Israel? Did I dream that? Maybe I dreamt it, but I, th- I thought there was a representative of uh, one of those countries that we always talk about that seems to always have a voting record with Israel. There is a candidate from Fiji, who, but but uh, that's for the presidency of the of the General Assembly. There's a candidate from Cyprus and a candidate from Fiji, and Cyprus, which has become very very friendly with Israel, um, uh, I think is the front runner right now. Uh, but I. I mean, I think the Bulgarians generally are supportive of Israel. Their relationship with Israel is very good. So are some of the other countries. But the fact is that the guy who will probably be the kingmaker is Putin. because He has a veto, and he may well exercise it. Wow. Uh, He's in the news. We'll get to him coming up. Uh, Whoever thought that finally Israel would get to the center of this presidential election campaign? 
Uh, we've seen it this week. By no coincidence, you know, the New York primaries is coming Tuesday. I'm sure you're aware of really? that. Yeah, believe it or not. And all of a sudden, we're seeing a lot of statements, a lot of analysis, and in the debates, a lot of questions and answers regarding Israel. Start with the appointment and then the uh, the subsequent um, suspension of Simone Zimmerman from the Bernie Sanders campaign. Well, the press called me about her because uh, she, one of her attributes that she touted was that she picketed my office this summer. <laughs> I did not know it. I, I mean, I did know there was a scraggly group outside that came a couple days, you know, uh, to uh, picket our office. Um, what, on the Iran deal thing? I, uh, pardon me? Because of the Iran deal? or what? No, Palestinian issue. Ah. And I didn't know him. I think it was under Student Justice for Palestine or something. Uh, some other uh, name, but uh, I obviously had no contact and no, didn't know about it, um, nor did I care about it particularly. The So the press kept calling me and asking me about it, and I didn't know. And then, of course, I got a call yesterday, but when you look at what she has said, it raises two questions. One, if he either, the people who hired her, whether the candidate himself or his, his staff, agreed with her points of view, were not bothered by her points of view, or, on the other side, didn't check out what she has said publicly, what she was on record as saying, uh, really outrageous things, both of which would be troubling. And uh, the suspension, I think, was uh, a necessity now, but he didn't fire her, he suspended her. Right. I, I, I jokingly said last night to someone, yet till after Tuesday. <laughs> well, may I not, don't know if it's a joke. may not be a joke, right? Um, I'm, I am, and th- and then, uh, so speaking of Israel being at the center of these uh, discussions, this whole, uh, issue of disproportionate response, it is amazing that he continues to harp on that, and I'm, I'm not choosing sides here. Um, and then I, and then the, and then the reaction, uh, during one of the times of the, uh, debate yesterday, um, that, um, where Hillary Clinton said, "If my hus- if um, Yasser Arafat would have accepted my husband's deal, there would be a Palestinian state," which I thought was interesting. My point being, years ago. yeah, my point being that that we we've spoken about this for months. How Israel and maybe even foreign policy in general really wasn't seeping into this whole discussion and into this whole debate. And now you see both on the Republican and Democratic side, and again with the New York primary on Tuesday, uh, you see that you know on, on both sides it's become a major issue this week. So I, I guess what, what I've always either looked to or hoped for, has finally occurred. Well, the nature of the debate that occurred, I think we'd be better off if it didn't. But the what disturbed me more, and people should listen who didn't hear it, and I only heard it this morning, uh, was the reaction of the audience to, to these outrageous uh, allegations uh, by Sanders about the disproportionality, and people shouldn't dismiss this. This is a, a code for about Israel's right to defend itself. And right. while he does protest and says Israel has a right, it was disproportionate, even though he said 10,000 dead, he didn't, clearly didn't have a, a, an idea of what the real numbers were. And even when it was corrected, he said, well, I accepted the correction. But he hasn't apologized. He hasn't said, oh, I was wrong and, I'm, and, and really understand the issue. When, when you look at what the reports of the studies done by American military and others who went there and said it was a model that they that the Israel ex, uh, exercised more uh, discretion and more restraint than than anybody else would have in, under similar circumstances. I mean, at ten thousand rockets, and I think the the uh, uh, message 
that somehow the responsibility falls on Israel. What, what is he saying? Why doesn't he say anything now about the huge buildup of Hamas uh, military along the border and the incitement that is starting again about Al-Aqsa, uh, you know, being under siege, which is a pre-Pesach uh, escalation by the Palestinian Authority itself, and the number of uh, attacks, serious attacks, mass casualty attacks that were prevented in the, from West Bank uh, sources uh, in, uh, affiliated with Hamas because of the work of the Israeli police and security, and I think some cooperation from the Palestinian security. But they don't cite those. Nobody mentions it. Um, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live. The Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Um, the, uh, I mentioned Putin, or you actually mentioned Putin. So the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, will meet with Putin this week, correct? Yes. And what will the nature of those talks be? Be about Syria and about the coordination between Israel and Russia, about not making making sure that Israeli overflights or attempts to prevent the the, the um, provision of sophisticated weapons to Hezbollah from Syria. We see the flow of weapons into Syria, and while Russia announced a withdrawal, the fact is that they are very active. Their their people, their military are directing many of the attacks we saw it. In, uh, in recently in some of the places that that were freed or recaptured, uh, that it's it's uh, Russians and you see Afghan militia and you see Iraqi militia, uh, some Iranians. You don't see as many Syrian soldiers, but you do see this conglomeration of people. And Russia still plays a critical role and is still defending the presence, as is Iran, which called a red line the, the retention of Assad. So that's one issue that uh, that I think that they they will be um, a primary issue that they will be talking about. Also, the sale of the S three hundred, this uh, air defense system, and it's still not clear what the reality is. You know, they announced it and they said it was it was the Iranians said it was a mistake that they just signed an agreement. Then there were reports that parts had been already shipped. It wasn't clear how many. Then there was an announcement today that in fact they're, they're not shipping at all. They're not. Completing it, uh, this the system for the five rockets. The S three hundred is a very sophisticated air defense system. It is a game changer. It would give them um, much greater ability to prevent an attack. Uh, the Russians, I think, have to be reluctant to really go through with the deal. They like the money, and they uh, have this contractual obligation. But they have, you know, been dilly dallying over this for ten years. So. I'm not sure what the real status is, and, and I think that will be a primary issue for Netanyahu and, and Putin to discuss, as well as the, um, you know, the overall situation. Uh, Russia is playing a bigger and bigger role, working its way into the Gulf area, into Egypt, uh, and other Sunni states. And uh, I think the, um, the regional situation will be the dominant. As I read about the, 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 the way the ceasefire is falling apart in Syria, so, ceasefire is in Syria is better for Israel, correct? And that's obvious, right? An uh, effective Israel ceas- wants stability wherever it can right. find it, and not give it cover for, because you see along the border with Israel, Syrian troops have disappeared. There are no more Syrian troops, not even on Mount Hermon. Since the winter, they haven't been there. But we do see the encroachments of uh, pro-Iranian and uh, some of the more uh, and some of the. Uh, groups like, well, Nusra has been there all along, but others have been trying to get in, and especially Hezbollah, and that's 
a red line. And once one of the things that Netanyahu will press Putin is to make sure that that none of these hostile forces gain a, a strong foothold. They're also doing it along the the Jordanian border. And, and and but I'm just confused. Is that related or unrelated to the ceasefire? In other words, why does it matter if there's a ceasefire in Syria? Wouldn't these groups anyway try to infiltrate and you know have a presence along the Israeli border? Yes, they will do it anyway. But um, well, a ceasefire depends. On, it really depends on the definition of of the ceasefire. Uh, you know, th- there was never really a full ceasefire. The war against ISIS, others continued unabated. Right. This was supposed to be a ceasefire between the groups and the. Um, uh, you know, the Russian planes are still flying their bombing raids, so are Americans, so are others. You know, it's estimated that 25,000 ISIS fighters in Syria and Iraq have been killed and others, but they still retain a big infrastructure. They still retain capacity there. Uh, we're seeing other radicalized groups also uh, emerging and fight, fighting, and, and the question is whether Assad and his troops will be feeling their Cheerios and keep going on to t- retake Raqqa and to move uh, in a bigger and bigger area or just consolidate their hold around Aleppo and Damascus. Um, and uh, there were parliamentary elections in Syria this week, right? Oh, yeah. Did that matter? <laughs> did, 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 no. did, did the results matter? No. So all, so all that politically has nothing to do with what's happening on the ground? No, because that that is really in a very limited area under Assad's control, so the outcome is really not that significant. Right, and in and in um, in Iran, an Iranian general against the law, and I assume that means international law, right, went to see Putin in Russia. Correct. It's against the the UN the, law. Or? The restrictions, yeah, the sanctions on. on so Iran. doesn't Putin? And it's funny because earlier in this conversation, you spoke about his influence in the UN. Doesn't he have an obligation to turn down a meeting like that, or to? Yeah, but Putin acts uh, with impunity because there's no consequence for any of the actions taken by virtually anybody today. Yeah. And you know, th- this guy Soleimani has been there before. It's not the first uh, trip. There are so many violations going on. I mean, what about the missile launches? What about the the other uh, aggressive actions that Iran is? Uh, is is uh, guilty of and the you know their their special forces have been are now in Lebanon uh, and of course they enlist Iraqi militias and others but they've had the first casualties of their regular army not of the RGC but a regular Iranian army have been reported over the last week in in uh, Syria and there were some acknowledgments uh, of it IRGC generals of course are are playing a big a role there and several of them have been killed um, and, uh, you know, in the meantime, they've upped their oil exports Iran by, by 600,000 barrels a day. It's, it's, um, there were, I think, 190,000 in January and 540,000 barrels a day in March. And they're replacing Nigeria and Iraq in their sales to uh, India. Uh, so Iran is already benefiting when we look at the financial uh, gains. So from the lifting of sanctions here, you see a very concrete one that doesn't get much attention. Boy, Putin, as as I think some people, you know, flippantly say uh, in, in, you know, in, in armchair quarterback analysis, might be the most important leader in the world right now, or the most influential, or the one who, you know, where, where things can sway on his... Certainly who exercises the influence he has in, in his aggressive way, and he, 
looks for every opening, uh, and I cited one last week about Morocco having tensions in the U.N. and stuff, and he goes and says, don't worry, we'll protect you. And he goes to the Egyptians and said, you know, we'll fill the void. The president is going to to Saudi Arabia to meet the Gulf Cooperation Council, and I think he's going to find a very um, hostile group, not hostile, uh, anxious and, and uh, unhappy group about where they see the U.S. Uh, uh, moving, uh, especially about the treatment of Iran and the question about whether they're given access to the dollar or not. But but now we see that the administration, which said that there couldn't be new sanctions on the nuclear side uh, with Iran because of the agreement and that this would undermine it and the, our allies would be would be alienated and they would, uh, you know, Iran would walk away and then we would have no restrictions. But now they're saying it about non-nuclear activities of Iran, like the missile launch, like other things, again, for the same reason. And the Undersecretary of Treasury testified to this this week, uh, which is, I think, uh, a big change in policy because it's not what they said just a few months ago uh, about um, additional sanctions. They have been applying restrictions on individuals who were involved with the missile program or Hezbollah, aids Hezbollah, but it's it's creating a great deal of confusion, and the allies in the region look at this and say, we, we, we don't know where America's headed. It seems that they keep giving in to, to Iran or, or weakening the policy on Iran, and for them, that's the critical issue because Iran's activities are expanding all the time. And they, uh, in their presence, not only in Iraq and Syria, but throughout the region, and their their threats to undermine the other countries in and, the region, and therefore they 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 want to fill that void of outside leadership by going to someone like Putin to try to control the situation. I'm not Putin who steps in and tries to fill the void, and you know while he doesn't have much of an economy, he doesn't have the ability has enough that he can offer loan deals to to other countries. He can. Um, provide them with assistance. But as I, I think I pointed out, that, that the in Syria, all the money that he spent, he's made ten times that amount from weapon sales now to other countries in the region. Mm. So the net gain is there, and of course Iran paid for a lot of the weapons that he was sending in. In the meantime, he stands and says, look, I stand by my friends, I stood up for Assad, you know, you can rely on me uh, as an ally. Jordan has shut down its Muslim Brotherhood uh, offices, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They they continue to uh, to try to uh, d- um, eliminate the radicals, uh, the radical terrorists there in their country. Well, they look. It, Jordan faces so many challenges, not only from the border with Syria, but the internal, you know, population with the two thirds Palestinians, with the, and maybe even more today, um, with the presence of Muslim Brotherhood with others, and he they acted against them as a hostile element, as a terrorist organization. It's reflective of the attitude around most of the Sunni countries uh, that the Muslim Brotherhood is a a dangerous uh, operation, regardless of the fact that they were diminished in Egypt. They still are active in in many countries and still have a presence. Uh, So Jordan took these steps against them, but they act against the terrorist groups quite consistently. The, the, The king can't afford to make a big mistake. Uh, are we in that period of time already where you know this transition in the United States is being viewed with great trepidation by other countries or are they are they anxious to see this transition um, I think they're confused they can't understand and all of them say please explain to us what's going on in this election but 
uh, I think that many are concerned what will happen in the next six or eight months while, while you know, the election's underway. They're not looking to next year. They're looking at this year in the agenda of, of uh, what will happen during, during the year ahead. This year, yet, they see, you know, a lot of situations of unrest and, and potential danger, and they're, they're assessing uh, those things. And if, if you look at the Europeans, you look at others, they, they're all still dealing with the ISIS. They're looking at the plots against them and you know the the it turns out the belgian attack was really going really wanted to target uk us and israeli flights and and passengers and the um um and and this is even detailed in the very slick uh, online magazine that isis puts out so you know the countries in the region are, are, are looking at their issues you saw this deal between saudi arabia and egypt this is really a very important uh, development for a number of reasons that don't get publicized. You, know, you remember in the Six-Day War, of course, uh, when the Straits of Tehran were closed, and that was the cause of the belly for the war, right. ultimately, that uh, there had been an agreement that there's supposed to be freedom of navigation. Israel was blocked. That meant that uh, Eilat was blocked. Israel couldn't get anything through, and ultimately it led to the war. The war, the Straits of Tehran and Sinafar, the, the islands of Tehran and Sinafar get captured by Israel. Israel gives them back to, to Egypt in the 79 agreement, but the agreement is that they are demilitarized, that there's guarantee of freedom of passage, uh, and you know it also controls the, the Gulf of Aqaba, the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba. And for all the years, it has been open, and Israeli ships have transversed the Suez Canal, but also uh, trade from Aqaba has increased. Now, the but these were originally given by Saudi Arabia to Egypt because they had the stronger military and they thought that they could defend them better. Now Egypt gave them back, but there was an understanding reached with Israel. And by the way, the United States was involved in this as well. And the uh, they uh, Saudi Arabia obligated itself to uphold the 79 agreement, meaning that uh, they would be demilitarized and that Israel would have uh, access, continued access, free navigation, uh, in the Straits of Tehran, and uh, whether the Knesset has to ratify it as a change in the agreement to the, with Egypt or not is, is a debatable point. But the fact is that Israel went along as long as it got its assurances. And some people are saying, well, you see, this is further evidence of, let's say, the thawing in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I don't know how far you can go with that argument, but things are moving ahead in the region, and there are a lot of things taking place that, that don't make headlines, but it's it's a reflection of their concerns and their feeling that they cannot rely on outside sources, and they see the aggressiveness of Iran throughout the region. Wow. So the U.S. has somewhat become not as dependable as it, as it has been in the past. Well, some many say that it's marginalized, or right. they, I think the president is going there now to show the flag, and We'll see how how um, how he's is received. I don't know if any of his replacement, any of the potential replacements, would be any different or any better in this regard. But who knows? Hard to predict the future, right? Right. Uh, it's even hard to predict the past these days. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, like when Donald Trump and other candidates talk about how horrible a decision it was to go take out Saddam Hussein. I don't know. To me, it sounds a little too simplistic. I don't know. Well, look, that's something that will be debated probably for the next hundred years, and then historians will start 
writing their own versions of the history of the period. It is a debatable point. Was it smart? Was it smart the way we followed up? Should we have dismantled the police forces and others? Should we have tried to co-opt them? I think there are a lot of legitimate questions, uh, which were raised, by the way, at the time. And contrary to what many uh, of Israel's detractors say, Israel didn't push for the war with Iraq. They thought America should be focused on Iran even then. And um, I know that uh, Sharon and others warned against the the war. Once, obviously, America decided to do it, they were supportive and and, uh, backed them. The United States. Yeah. Well, we got to get to your Pesach message, and we have Rabbi Yudin with the Shabbos Agadol Drusha. First, the, the Israeli soldier from the Chevron case has been charged with manslaughter, right? He's been charged with manslaughter. And I, I don't know if you have a uh, you know hand on the pulse of this, but I'm always curious if this is a major issue in Israel, if it's dominating the media and the you know in the coffee shops, or this is really just a backburner story at this point there. No, I think for certainly for many for certain segments of the population, these uh, this is a, a big issue, a more vocal issue. Um, there are people who are analyzing: is there a change in the next generation? Are they more assertive? Are they making uh, the younger generation? Are they how they? Uh, and it probably splits between those who are get completely against and those who are uh, adamantly for uh, on these issues. The I think it's too early to draw conclusions. But the uh, you know there is a significance because we've had several incidents of of arrests and and people are saying well it's disproportionate these are people acting in defense and but also Israel has to have rules and there are rules of engagement and you know they apply to soldiers because you can't just have everybody making a decision to kill or to shoot or to to not to shoot by the way uh, on their own they have to follow the rules and that's what we're seeing being done but the, you know. There has been. There are disturbing polls, by the way, which get not so much coverage about where uh, public opinion in the Arab world, where you see ninety percent of Iraqis regard the U.S. as an enemy, and especially amongst young people, that. Um, well, uh, why wouldn't they? Pardon me. Why wouldn't they? What are and, they? And sixty percent of of Saudi Arabia and UAE see U.S. as an ally, but here we're investing all these billions of dollars to defend Iraq. And and in Yemen and and amongst the Palestinians, which was the point I made, and there, ninety percent all uh, reject the U.S. and, and regard it as an enemy. And the in Israel, you would still find that eighty or ninety percent see the United States as an ally and and see it in positive ways. Um, and the connection between the United States and Israel on on so many levels. You know, there's a new thing called the uh, drone dome. <laughs> which is a, a new system Israel has developed to counter hostile drones, which is a combination of using cameras and radar, where they lock in on, on hostile drones that are flying, and then they're able to disrupt their uh, electrical systems and to bring the drones down, crash them or disable them. Unbelievable. Yes, it's um, that nobody, you know, people don't, don't pay much attention to all these things that come out every single day of Amazing new development. Can I ask you one other question on this manslaughter case? Um, There's been a noticeable, I think most media sources out of Israel would agree with this at this point, there's been a noticeable drop in in the attacks, in the stabbing attacks over the last few weeks. And again, of course, we know that, you know, we, we still hear too often about, you know, thwarted attacks, etc. We read a lot about that this week. I'm not minimizing what's still going on. But is it possible 
that it's not just security, which you've pointed out over the last few weeks. It's not just intelligence and not just a crackdown by Israeli security, but maybe, uh, you know, maybe is it possible that the enemy sees the type of response that soldiers and others might give um, to someone who perpetrates, perpetrates a crime and decide to change their plan? Absolutely. It's, uh, I think there are a couple of things. One is the, the actions and the fact that, you, you know, you eliminate the terrorists when they're in the act, and where you can capture them, you do so, but otherwise you don't endanger the lives of civilians. Second, they see that it has no pa- impact on Israeli life, that they can engage in all these attacks. They pay the price. And many parents now are interceding, and there are new programs that Israel has initiated in some of the troubling uh, villages that where more of the um, perpetrators came from, building a soccer field here, opening up a new route so that they can't, they have to go out a different way, right. away from the road where Israelis uh, were being hit by rocks more often. So there are positive approaches, and then there's the tougher approach. But the, uh, as I said before, there were a lot of uh, acts, including some mass casualty acts that Hamas had planned from the West Bank that were uh, prevented by uh, good intelligence work and, and assertive action. Uh, the, and even just in the last 24 hours, and I think we can anticipate that or it is anticipated before Pesach, because we're seeing the incitement about Al-Aqsa escalating, and that's uh, to to try and, and, and during a period of, of a lot of focus on Jerusalem and on tourism in Jerusalem, to try and act. And the Israelis, Israeli security forces are, and police are doing an outstanding job trying to prevent it, and, and at times in cooperation with the Palestinian Authority, Who's interested is because those same elements want to overthrow the government of uh, or so-called government of um, of, Assad, of uh, Abbas. Yeah, no and by the way, you know Abbas's brother lives in in Qatar, but he's being treated for cancer in an Israeli hospital. What do you say to that? Yes. What does Abbas say to that? <laughs> Uh, finally, a, a prepay. You know, next week will be Erev Pesach. We won't be convening. The following week is Shvishal Pesach, so obviously we won't be on. And hopefully the following Friday or the one after that, we'll restart our weekly update. A pre-Pesach message on this era of Shabbos Haggadol. What is it that we should be keeping in mind in terms of the big picture of the Jewish people right now? The pre-Pesach message. Um, look, one of the things I think that is really important is for people, when they sit at the Seder, to think of the contemporary significance of everything in the Seder. That it's not... You know, there are a couple of books written about the Miguel Esther and how it's the political messages and how contemporary significance and the, and the halacha, the law, is that if you only read the Megillah as something describing an event, an historic event, and not think about its contemporary significance, you've, you've missed the message. And I think the same thing is true in the Seder, and that's why you see so often where it uses the present tense. Behold, Ovidor, Omdi Moleno, didn't say that they on every generation they arose in the past as but that they arise against us. Right. And if you study what's in the in Agada, you find the solutions, you find the encouragement, you find the messages that there's nothing different. What is BDS different than what uh, Pharaoh said, Havanishakmolo? He didn't say the Jews did anything wrong. He didn't say that they undermined the security of the country. He said they're building it. They're becoming strong and they're contributing. But we have to deal shrewdly with them. We have to attack them. We have to that's what the BDS, when it doesn't show anything that Israel does wrong, it attacks the existence of the state. It says that we have to deal shrewdly, we have to control them, we have to contain them, we have to eliminate them. Yeah. And I think that that is really the important thing, when you sit with your kids to talk to them about, 
and that the Seder, that part of the discussion should be about what this really means to all of us today. Uh, what an important point. Uh, we wish you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, a wonderful holiday, and we'll reconvene at the appropriate time after Yontif. God willing, and have a really Chag Kasher V'Sameach to everyone, and it'll really be a Chag redemption for all of us and all our brothers who are in Taurus, and we'll see a, a different era emerge after Pesach. Oh, man, thank you so much. Candle lighting 715 on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Mitzorah. It is Erev Shabbos Hagadol here at JM in the AM.